Well, I hate to get your hopes up, but I'm not preaching today. Um, Scott Johnson, uh, who's an associate pastor at the, at the Rock, is, is here this morning. Uh, we've had the privilege of, of serving together in the past, and I don't know if I could recommend someone here this morning maybe higher than, than Scott Johnson. Uh, he's also the greatest Lions fan I've ever met. <laughs> so you can ask him about all the quarterbacks. Scott, let's give him a warm welcome. Thank you, guys. It's always a privilege to be able to open the Word with anybody. I, I want um, everybody to know when I have this opportunity, man, it's something that I take very seriously, something that I'm in prayer and in preparation for anytime you can open the, the Word. I hope you guys are praying for, for Pastor Phil and Lauren. What an awesome thing, and hopefully they're getting a good good week of rest, somewhat rest, uh, with, the, with the new babies. So, yeah, yeah, the Lions fan, that's sad. It's, uh, I've, I've had a lot of pain in my life. I know about the stress and anxiety that, that Chris is talking about, and every year, every year is a, a different year, right? Different pain, but it's all good. So um, my, my identity doesn't come in the Lions. It comes in, in Jesus Christ. So today I hope to share some of that with you today. Let's pray this morning and we'll begin. Father, we just thank you for, for who you are. I thank you for this, this body of believers, Lord, that honors and glorifies your name in this town. And I pray that, uh, that I would not be a distraction today, that we would just see what your word has and how we can leave this place, leave this building, Lord, to know, to be reminded of the greatness of who you are and how we can proclaim that to the people that you have called us to, Lord. And I pray that um, that would be evident today and that your name is proclaimed and honor, honored and glorified in this. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be in John chapter 2. Uh, I'm not going to mess with Pastor Phil's sermon series or anything like that. I'll let him, I'll let him deal with that. Um, we as a church have been going through John, so I'm going to be in John chapter 2. And we're going to deal with the, the wedding at Cana. It is Jesus' first miracle. And so I want to walk through this story and then ask the question at the end of what, what does this story have anything to do with us? What is, what is the point of all of it? John chapter 2, verse 1. It says this, On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Uh, weddings are a, a beautiful thing. In 2002, I had just recently graduated college, and 2002 for me was like the year of weddings. I had six close friends that were all getting married between May and October. And so I was not yet married, and my summer and early fall was filled with these different weddings. And I went to school out of state, so half of my friends' weddings were out of state, half of them were here. And I was looking forward to this year, this summer, going, man, I'm going I'm to travel a little bit, get to hang out with, with my friends, and see them all get married. It was a very, very fun year for me. One wedding in particular I was looking forward to because it was in Northern California. And so I had been to the, the South Side, LA and San Diego, but I had never been to um, Northern California. So I was excited about this wedding. And so what I decided to do was take extra time before and after. So if I'm going to be out there, I want to make a whole week of this thing. So instead of going out there for a Saturday wedding, I went out there on Thursday, stayed Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and all the way through Monday and wanted, wanted to make uh, a good time of it. And so a lot of my college friends, of course, standing in the wedding as well. And we're all planning on being out there, getting our hotels and, and everything ready. And um, I go out there, and man, everything was just, just like I expected, was beautiful. I love 
Uh, Northern California, it was, like, it was like summertime, June or July, and so the weather was perfect. And we flew into San Francisco and decided, hey, you know, since we're here, let's, let's check this out. I want to see what San Francisco is all about. Do the whole Golden Gate Bridge thing. You drive down Lombard Street. It's like the curviest street in America or something like that. So do all, do all the touristy things and um, go downtown and see the market and all of that. And my friends and I were having a, an enjoyable time taking that time together. We had just been out of college for maybe a year or so at that point, half a year. And so you're reminiscing about the old times and you're, and you're talking and just, and just having a good old time. And so uh, the groom takes us all golfing and so we got to have a chance to go golfing in Northern California. The scenery is just beautiful. And this whole week was just, was just beautiful. And we go to the church to do the wedding rehearsal. And I'm telling you, I have never seen a church building look like this before. Like you've seen it in, in, on TV or driving by. But when I walked in, I'm like, man, this is one of the most gorgeous buildings I had ever seen. And so my friends and I were like looking at each other like, I didn't know people actually had weddings like this. It was something that you would see from, from a movie. And it was awesome. And so we go through that, the whole thing and have the wedding, uh, the wedding rehearsal. And then you go do dinner that, that night. And then the next day, the wedding, uh, the wedding ceremony happens. The ceremony was, was beautiful. It was very cool to see the actual wedding happen. And it, what's fun about it, too, is that you get to know uh, your friend through college and then his fiance, and you get to see the relationship unfold and all of that. So it really is a beautiful picture in this, this beautiful church out there in, in Northern California. And then we go to the reception afterwards. And we're, this is Northern California, so we're driving several miles into the, the vineyards. It's wine country, and it's just simply gorgeous. And we pull up into this place that is, um, that is wine vineyards, and they have this setting, this outdoor patio setting with these streaming lights and everything. And I had, again, never seen a setting like this. It was something that you would see in a Hallmark movie. And my friends and I were just kind of joking around, like, man, these guys, like, they really know how to put this, this wedding together. And so I have memories of that, just because it was, it was a special summer for me. It was a special week for me. And today we're going to look at a wedding in Cana that Jesus was at. And I, I imagine it to be very similar in the sense where, in the Jewish custom, they would take week, a week to do this. It was more than just one day. And so imagine this town that is a very small town, this town of Cana. It is estimated that maybe less than 100 people live in this town. And so they probably got to see the, the bride and the groom uh, grow up and get to know each other and, and see their story and all of that. And so people are excited, taking time away from their everyday schedules, a little bit like my, my trip to California, thinking we're, we're going to be excited about this. But there's some other things going on here that is extremely intriguing to me in this story, is that Jesus is going to be there. And so you imagine the, the rumors flying around. You imagine the stories that are being told, and people are going, man, Jesus is going to be here. We get to se- spend a week with him and see how things are going on around here and see what he's actually about. You see, just a chapter before, he had be- just begun his earthly ministry and called his first five disciples. And so these disciples are saying, yes, we are going to follow you, but there's so little that they know about him at this time. And so imagine now these disciples are with him and they're saying, man, Jesus is going to be there. We are following the Messiah, the one that we have believed in. And we're going to find out who this guy is. And we get to to spend all of this time with him. And there's this massive intrigue around what's happening here at this wedding. And we pick it up in verse 3. It says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. So we have this beautiful setting, this picture of a wedding, this, this idea of excitement and enchantment and all of these things that are happening together and people are, are looking forward to it. 
but there is a disaster that is about to happen. You see, in this Jewish culture, the wine was a a picture of the ceremony for the whole week, and it represented joy. A lot of the priests in in the olden days would say that the wine represented the joy for the week. And so nobody wanted to run out of wine. The other thing is that the, it was the groom's responsibility to provide this wine. Today, it would be the, the father of the bride that is essentially planning the wedding or paying for the wedding or getting things in, in our culture. Well, in this Jewish culture, it was the groom's responsibility to have all of this stuff ready, paid for, and prepared for. And so we think about what's, what could happen here. If they run out of wine, this is the guy in the small town that for the rest of his life, people are going to run into him and say, oh, dude, remember when you ran out of wine at your wedding? And he's getting made fun of for his entire life. Nobody's ever going to let him live that down. The other part about it is we laugh a little bit about that, and it's kind of funny, but there's a serious part where he was, because of this, being providing for the wedding and his future bride, if he was to run out of wine, it would show his wife's parents that he quite possibly was not able to provide for his bride. And so there would be a massive disaster on this guy's head if this was, if this was about to happen. And so he, he doesn't even really know what's going on here, but Mary notices that there, the wine is running out, and she says something. And so she turns to Jesus and says, they have no wine. This is a picture to me, which is, which is really intriguing, because Mary had some, something to do with this wedding. Maybe it was a very close friend, maybe it was a family member, whatever it, what it, what it is. She was serving this wine, helping in the back room, getting things prepared. And so she was the first one to notice that the wine was running out. And so her first reaction is to turn to Jesus. Why would she turn to Jesus? A couple of things. One, at this time it is quite possible, we do not know this for sure, but it's quite possible that Joseph, her husband, had passed. The reason we believe that is because we have not seen or heard from Joseph since Jesus was a little boy. And then fast forward three years here from this story, when Jesus is on the cross dying, he looks at John, this disciple, the author of this book, and he says to John, take care of my mother, because Joseph was not around to do that. And so it's quite possible Joseph is gone. He's not present at this wedding, and so it's possible that he had deceased at this point. And so Jesus, as the oldest son, would be the one that Mary would look to. For whatever reason, she has an issue, she has a problem, she has, she has some concerns. She looks to her oldest son for help. The other part about this is that of all people, Mary knows who this Jesus is. Right? Imagine the, the, the scene and the setting. We have this, this Christmas time and the Christmas story that we're talking about where the angel Gabriel comes to her and says, you are going to conceive a son, you're going to bear a son as a virgin, and he is going to save the people from their sins. And so from the moment that happens, Mary is understanding of who this Jesus was going to be. Then she carries him for nine months as a virgin. She gives birth to him and then raises this child who has no sin, no issues, no reason for spanking, no reason for discipline, and now Jesus is a grown adult. And so she's saying, I realize who this Jesus is. And so whatever's going through her mind These are the reasons that she turns to Jesus because she knows this is the only one that's going to be able to solve this this problem here. And so we we pick it up here in verse verse 4. It's about to get really awkward. This beautiful setting, a disaster is about to happen. She says this to Jesus, and then Jesus responds. 
And Jesus said to her in verse 4, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. If you're reading this story, if you're hearing this maybe for the first time or haven't heard of, heard of it in a while, you're beginning to read this story, and this could be a part where you kind of take a step back and say, hold on, wait a minute. This sounds like one of the rudest things that I've ever heard. Why would Jesus say that to anybody? Why would Jesus say that to his mother of all people? And you can be taken aback a little bit and kind of get distracted on what the story is saying. And so I want to address that a little bit to say, why, why would he say this to his mother? Now, you guys know this. If, if, if I was to go home today and to look at my wife and say, woman, would you go make me some food? It's not going to go well, right? <laughs> why? Because in our culture, that, that, is, that is a very rude thing to say. But we have to understand there's, there's something that is lost in translation here. When Jesus is saying woman, and the way it gets translated into English, would actually be the same thing as me calling a lady in here ma'am. And so it would be saying ma'am, very politely, however it's very formal. And so the question is, why, why would Jesus, although polite, address his mother in a formal setting? And the reason is, is what he says is, woman, what does this have to do with me? What Jesus is saying at this time is this was when he begins his earthly ministry, and he is now saying that I am on mission. I have a divine purpose, and so he begins to separate the relationship of mother and son and woman and Messiah, ma'am and Messiah. This is the very same word that I just referenced. When, when Jesus is on the cross, and he is dying, and he looks at John, the disciple John, one of his best friends, and he looks at his mother, and he says, Woman, behold your son. He says those words that would be saying, Ma'am, behold your son, pointing to John. Because John was going to be the one that was going to take care of Mary at that point. And he was dividing the fact that you are no longer my earthly mother. My time on here is done. And so this is a similar setting where Jesus is now beginning his earthly ministry, and he is separating this, whatever Mary's... Uh, idea was, whatever fix she wanted to happen, whatever concern she had, Jesus is saying, I am about my father's business. I have a divine purpose, and that is my mission going forward. You and I know this is a lesson for us today, that it is very easy for us to get caught up in the, the daily grind of everything. I got to go to work. I got to get this done. And there are times this is, this is why we gather as a body is because there's times that we need to sit back and go, what really is my focus? I get so focused on these earthly things, but it really is about the divine purpose of Jesus. Pick it up in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is beautiful because what happens is there's this, there's this exchange between Jesus and his mother, and her immediate response is, submission to him, right? And imagine that setting, and, and it's a it's beautiful picture because we know that in all of this story, in, in all of Scripture, Jesus is the only one that is worthy to be submitted to. And Mary knew that. We just discussed that Mary understood who Jesus was. And so whatever her mindset was, whatever concern she may have had, she understood, yeah, I will submit to your authority, whatever you need to do. Now, this could be, uh, if you ever have time, don't have time to, to preach a sermon, somebody asks you to, 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 to give a lesson and you have like two minutes, 
say this is the this is the sermon of Mary, and it says do whatever Jesus tells you to do, and you can just drop the mic and then walk away and be like, that's all I got to do, right? That's a good sermon for all of us to know. Do whatever Jesus tells you to do. You'll probably have a, have a good life if, if that's the case. And so I think it's, it's important to know, though, that she sees that, and she sees the authority of Jesus and submits to his authority. Verse 6 says this. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And so they had brought in, most likely for this wedding, maybe they were borrowed from the, the neighbors or friends, these huge stone jars. You can, you can Google pictures of them that they still use, uh, have in Israel today. But these things would be massive, stone, something that uh, only like a really strong dude could pick up. I couldn't be able to pick it up by myself, let alone filled with all this water. And there was six of them out there. But the purpose of these things was, it calls it purification. It means to wash yourself. And so any uncleanness, these are what these would be used for. This includes the dishes at the wedding. This includes all of the guests coming in to wash their hands, to wash their feet from the, the traveling that they had had, uh, all of the dirt that would, that would be on them. And the point of these things was to, to clean. So make, make note of this is that the water in there was not made for drinking. It was made for, for washing and for purification. As a matter of fact, that water would probably be considered very gross to drink. That's not something that uh, anybody would look at and say, I, I want a I sip of that. It's made to wash your hands, to wash your feet, to wash the things that were used for the, for the wedding feast. And it's important to note the, the size of this, the amount of this. As we get to uh, what's going to happen here in the miracle of Jesus and what he does, is that there was, it ends up being 20 to 30 gallons, and this becomes, is about to become over 4,000 servings of wine. All right, and then we'll, we'll pick up that point here in a little bit. If you're a note taker, you can jot down, we're not going to read it today, but you can jot down Mark chapter 7 in the first six or seven verses. We'll talk a little bit more about this, about how the disciples uh, use these things and the, 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 the purification water and what it, was, what it was used for and their attitude towards it. Verse 7 says this, Jesus says to the servants, now in the middle of all this, I can't help but think what these servants may be thinking. Right? We don't know who all of these servants are. We don't know if this is their job, if this was a voluntary thing. But they're probably getting a little bit nervous going, we're running out of wine. And Jesus begins to tell them, fill these, fill these things with water. And now remember, this water was not, not made to drink in this specific case. So maybe they're saying, what is happening here? But I find it interesting that they do also submit to Jesus' authority. And so it says this, verse 7. It says, Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. This is a beautiful picture here because I love, there, there's two things going on here. Number one, if these jars, these huge stone jars are filled with water all the way to the brim, that's showing, number one, that nothing could be added to this thing to, 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 to change it. And so we know what's about to happen, that Jesus is about to turn this water into wine. And this is stating pretty clearly that it wasn't as if if these things were filled to the brim, it wasn't as if he could take some wine and put it in there and dilute it and stir it up and then serve it. There was no room for any of that. So whatever miracle is about to ensue is about to be completely a miracle and not just some illusion or some disguise or some, some mixed together. The other thing that's beautiful about this is that you and I serve a king who when he gives things, 
He gives things above and beyond anything that we would ever expect. And so it says that it filled them to the brim. And John tells us that Jesus gives grace upon grace. And it says that Jesus came to give life and then he, gave, and he came to give it abundantly. You and I as humans, to be, to be quite honest, there are days, there are weeks, there are times when we're just trying to, to get by. We're just trying to make it through the next day. And sometimes we say, man, I hope I just can survive this week. Man, I'm just trying to survive another day. I hope I can just pay my bills. I hope I can just, just make it through another Christmas season. And this is the mindset that we have. And Jesus comes along and he says, this is your focus. I know that, you have, that you're focusing on that, but I have come to give you life and I have come to give you it more abundantly than you can ever imagine. And that includes the spiritual blessings that Jesus has given us. Those are described in Ephesians chapter 1, those spiritual blessings that you and I have if we know Jesus. And we're reminded at this wedding that Jesus gives above and beyond anything. And I think about that in the sense of the over 4,000 servings of wine that was there. What he is doing is he's giving a gift either to the bride and the groom or the wedding party, something way beyond anything that they ever needed. And this beautiful picture here is happening when this miracle goes on is that this undrinkable water becomes some beautiful wine. And we'll look at this continually here in verse, um, verse, chapter eight, uh, verse 8. Excuse me. It says this, And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So the master of the feast would be what we would call maybe a, a maitre d' today. And he's the one that is overseeing all of this. We don't know if it was his job. We don't know if he was serving. Uh, we don't know exactly what was going on. But Jesus tells them, to draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And this is very interesting to see what happens. It says they took it, obedient to Christ here. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, it did not, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the master of feasts called the bridegroom. This is, this is fun to, to read through here because if you're reading it so fast, you might not even necessarily see what's happening. All of a sudden, this miracle happens so subtly, so subtly that many people don't even know what's happening, right? The, the master of the feast does not know what's happening. Imagine these servants' hearts where they're going, I have to dip this water and I have to serve it to probably my boss, they might have feared for their job. They might have feared to, to, to get yelled at, to get embarrassed in front of these people. Going, we, he, we were supposed to serve this undrinkable water. But yet then they see the miracle happen right in front of their eyes. And the master of the feast has no idea. This miracle happens subtly. This reminds me that God works in our lives even when we don't know what's happening. We sing a song, I don't know if you guys have ever, ever sung the song, but it says that Jesus is a way maker, and that even when I can't see it, God is working. Even when I can't feel it, God is working. And sometimes we're focused on that task in front of us. Sometimes we're praying and wondering if, if God is even listening or even working. And I'm reminded in this miracle here at Cana that even though not everybody knows what's going on, that God is in control that Jesus has our backs and has our best interests, even though that's not exactly what we don't necessarily define. And, he, and what he does is, I, lo- I love this, the, the master of the feast is going to come out and really have no idea what's happening, and he's going to go to the groom. And so he says this in verse, verse 10. And he said to him, so he's going to the groom, everyone serves the good wine first, and what people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. 
but you have kept the good wine until now. And so imagine this setting here where the servants kind of see this miracle happen. They're probably just standing back going, I can't even believe what's happening. The master of the feast probably never knew that the wine was even running out. And so he goes to the groom, the groom who was responsible for bringing this, preparing this, setting this all up. And he says to him, man, this is, this is insane. I have been to, I've been to many weddings. I've been to many weddings, and this is, this is how they do that. You did this the best way that I've ever seen it. You're now bringing out this wine that is, that is incredible. Most people flip it the other way around, and then it's, it's an unorthodox way to do it. And imagine that groom, who I can, I can just imagine the scene out there. He's out there dancing with his bride. He's hanging out with all of his friends and all of his family. And the master of the feast comes to him and he says, Man, this is insane. You're throwing the best party ever. This is the best wine I've ever tasted. And the groom's probably like in his head going, like, I don't even know what's happening. I don't even know what he's talking about. I wasn't even sure the wine was running out. I don't know why this wine would be any better than the wine before. And so if I'm the groom, I'm just going to look back, give him the thumbs up, and pretend like I know what's happening. Like, yeah, dude, you know it. Keep it rolling, you know? And, and everybody's excited. And so he's sitting there going, I, I can't even believe this. And I love this because what he says is, the, the master of the feast says, basically, this is an unorthodox way to do this. this is, I've been to a lot of weddings This is not the way that it is supposed to be done. And I love this because this is another picture of Jesus. Uh, Chris was just talking about from Philippians chapter 2 that we are are taught that we, we serve a God who came down from his throne. He did it in an unorthodox way. He was sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and he chose to come down here to be born in a lowly manger, to serve and to live on this earth with sinful human beings, and to die the death, the death on the cross for you and for me. This is not the way anybody would picture a king doing that. I would imagine if, if you could, without reading this, talk about what do you think Jesus' first miracle would be. And you could kind of imagine, man, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, Lord over all creation. What is the first thing you think he would do? I would imagine it would be something, I would predict something like, I don't know, he'd probably go downtown Jerusalem where there's tens of thousands of people that would see him, stand in front of everybody, look at the sun and say, I am the son of God, I can make this thing disappear, kill the sun, and then bring it back. And then everybody would worship him and be like, you obviously are God. That's something that we would have in our mind of, that's, that's a miracle that I would think would happen. But Jesus does it in an unorthodox way. He does it in a way where not everybody is even seeing what's happening. And I think it's a beautiful picture of of who Jesus is because you and I have our plans laid out before us. We are believers in Christ. We say, this is what my life is going to look like. This is what my job is going to be. This is what my family is going to be. This is where I'm going to live. This is what I'm going to do today. And Jesus comes along and says, those might be your ideas. Those might be your plans But I have something completely different than that. I have something greater than that. I have something better than that. If you would only trust me and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in who Jesus is. And he does it in an an unpredictable way, in a different way. And then we pick up in verse 11, in the the close of the story. It says this. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. I love this. I love how this story ends because very subtly, what John is saying here, when he says the word, he has manifested his glory, 
It is connecting him to one thing and one thing only. There is only one person, and the Jews know this at this time, there's only one person who has any glory. There's only one person who has the ability to be worshipped and glorified. And that is God the Father. And Jesus, by doing this, is beginning to, on his, on his earthly mission, to, beginning to connect himself and saying, me and the Father are one. I am the Son of God. I do have the ability to show deity. When you manif- manifest your glory, it is, is saying that he was showing his deity, showing who he was. And that it is only Jesus Christ who has the ability to connect himself with God because he is God. And maybe they understood that at the time. Many of them did, many of them did not. But it says, and the disciples believed. The question is, did they, did they not believe before? Who were they before? If you see them in, in the first chapter of John, he begins to call them. He calls them away from their, their lives and he says, follow me. And they pick up what they're doing. They had heard his uh, prophecy from, from all of their life, most likely. And he said, this is the one we, we want to follow after him. And I believe they believed at that moment, but I believe this is a time where they were saying, man, you know, we, we believe, but now I know this for sure. And I'm taking that step of faith to saying that I am all in because we hadn't, up until now, we hadn't seen anything. We hadn't, we hadn't known anything of who he was. And at this moment, the disciples see Jesus in his glory. They see his deity and they say, yes, we totally believe this is the son of God. I'm going to follow after him and follow everything that he is. And I love this story. It's a, it's a fun story. It's an enjoyable story. I'm, I'm reminded of the wedding that I shared with you, and I think of being in the scene there and how, how, how fun that would be. Even I have the, uh, the, the capability, the thought process normally to want to make this a movie or make this a story. And so sometimes that's our thinking when we read through things. And I want to make sure that we walk away asking the right questions. What, what does this have to do with us? Is this just a, a beautiful story? Is this just a cool thing? Or how, does, how is this connected to, to us? And so I want to talk through a few of these characters in the story. And hopefully one of them would relate to you today. First and foremost is John. John is the, the narrator. He is one that is walking with Jesus. He is at this wedding and he's the one telling the story. If you guys have a, a Bible with you, flip over to 1 John. Towards the end of your Bible, just before Revelation. So 1 John, this is the same author, but later in his life. He says this in verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. And testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and made manifest to us. What is John saying here? He is saying that, listen, this is at the end of his life. I have given my life. I have written books of the Bible because I walked with this guy. This isn't just some story that I'm trying to tell you. He's saying that I touched him. We walked with him. I saw his glory right in front of us. And I want you to know that this is more than just a story. And that's who John was. Why would he write it? John, back to the Gospel of John. Flip over to John chapter 20. In verse 30, it says this. 
So this is towards the end of the Gospel of John. It says this in John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Many miracles were performed, but not all were recorded in this book. Verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is telling us, he's telling all people past him, fellow, fellow believers, people that don't yet know him as well, that, listen to me, I have given my life, I walked with this guy. He is the truth, he is the way, he is deity, he is the only one that is worthy of glory, and that I'm only telling you this story so that you would believe in him. I'm not telling you the story because it was cool, because it was fun. I'm telling you so that everybody would understand that there is only one worthy of that. And that you would give your life to his because he is the only one that can give eternal life. And it's important to know that, coming from John, who he is, why he would even write this story. The second character in this is the disciples. The disciples are like many of us in this room. They're, they're believers. They're people that have followed after Jesus in their life. And they were believing in John chapter 1, but met, yet maybe not all in. And what they did was they were able to see God's glory and see that manifest. And they were like, you know what? I'm committing my life to him. Like This, this is really what it's all about. They decided to go all in. Maybe there's believers in here that have accepted Christ as their Savior. You, you've been baptized. You say, yes, I know Jesus in my life. But you have not gone all in for him. You have not committed your life to him. You have not made dedication to say, I want to be like John. I want to be like these disciples and make it about everything that I am. So much so that it is their identity. I don't want you to know anything else about me other than who Jesus Christ was. And maybe they needed, maybe they needed that first-hand reminder of that miracle right in front of their face to be reminded of who Jesus is. And maybe some of us need to be reminded of that today. Maybe you've been saved, maybe you've known Jesus for 30, 40 years, whatever it would be. And you just have kind of lost, lost that passion. You've lost that drive. You've lost that commitment. You're not all in for Christ, maybe because something happened in your life or I'm just going through the ritual. I pray that today we're reminded of who Jesus is and and, and to ask ourselves, is he worthy of this worship? Is he worthy of going all in for? And if so, I want to give my life to him. The servants in this story, we don't know everything about them. Matter of fact, we don't know much more about them at all after this story. There is no indication that these servants, even though they saw the miracle of Jesus happen, there's no indication that they gave their life to Christ, that they truly believed. Uh, As a matter of fact, flip over to John chapter 12, Gospel of John chapter 12, and verse 37. So at this point, you've heard of more miracles through reading, and it says this, Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And these servants had a firsthand, up-close-and-personal look at who Jesus was. His glory was manifest in front of them, and many of them still did not believe. My heart hurts for people who see miracles of Jesus in their life, 
who hear the gospel preached, who open the word of God, who sit here on a Sunday morning and hear the name of Jesus proclaimed and have never given their life to Christ. It's just this cool story that they want to tell people about. And we have this first-hand look at a miracle and still never give our life to Christ. And I pray that, the, that these words, that this would be an, an understanding, a knowledge of the fact that he is real. And I would want to give my life to him through that. Many of you have had first-hand knowledge of, of, of who Jesus is. Grown up in a church, you've seen people give their life to him. You've seen uh, addictions healed. You've seen marriages healed. You've seen families healed. And you still have never given your life to him. And I, and I pray for that. I hurt for the servants that didn't see that all the way. At every, at every wedding I've ever been to, at every wedding you've probably been to, there's always a group, a select few of people that don't feel like they belong. I don't really know the bride and the groom that well. I don't even know why I got invited to this place. Maybe I'm a little bit underdressed. I'm not even sure why I'm here. I'm, I'm kind of unworthy to be here. And so you kind of you show up a few minutes late. You sneak in the back of the wedding. Uh, you just have, have the meal and you kind of head home because you feel, you feel uncomfortable. Many feel uncomfortable. Many feel unworthy of the love of Jesus. Maybe you guys have probably heard people say that. Man, I, I want you to come to church. Man, I cannot step foot in that building. If you had any idea who I am, I would not be welcomed there. And we know that Jesus died for all. And that your sin is no different than, than my sin. And you and I all fall short of the glory of God. And maybe there's somebody in this room today. Maybe there's somebody in this community that you know of that feels unworthy to come before God and to accept that relationship that he has offered. And the picture in this story is so beautiful because Jesus says, you are like that water. I'm going to take this undrinkable water, this gross, nasty water that's only meant to be washing of hands and feet and to make it in the most beautiful wine that you have ever tasted, more abundant than you could ever imagine. Jesus is saying, that's what I can do with your life. And you might think that you are unworthy. You might think that you're unwelcome. But Jesus is granting that to you. He's granting that to to me. He's granting that to to this community. And it's our job as believers to, to proclaim that and to teach that and to welcome people so that they could see the goodness of God, the abundant life that he can give. The last character in this story is, is the hero of the story. The hero of the story is not the, the bride and the groom who celebrated their wedding that week. The hero of the story is not the master of the feast who was the one to bring the wine to the groom and, and, and get a lot of the, uh, the praise for that. The hero of the story is not Mary, the mother of Jesus, who noticed that the wine was running out. The hero and the focus of the story is the one and the only one who is worthy of the honor and the glory. The only one that has the ability to turn something undrinkable into the most beautiful picture of of all. The only one that can grant you and I eternal life. The only one that has the power to create something out of nothing and to take on the very form of God. The hero in this story is Jesus Christ, who died for your sins. He died for my sins. He died for sins of people in this community that we love and we care about. And I'm reminded today that through this story that I, that I see this and I read this, that, yeah, this is a cool story. Sure, it would be fun if it was made into a movie. But let's not lose the focus of the whole point of it. The whole point of it is Jesus. 
And that you and I, whether we've accepted him or not, he is calling our name. He's telling you that I can, that I can grant you a life, a life more abundant than you would ever imagine. And if we just need to turn to him, we need to give our life to him. If you have done that and you're a believer, maybe you're reminded this morning that this needs to be more encompassing for me. This needs to be something that is, that is my identity and who I am. And I want, like John, I want my life to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Father, we just come before you this morning. We just say thank you for, for who you are, for coming to this earth to live a life, Lord, that you showed us how to serve, how to love, and then gave your life for us. And I pray, Lord, if there's anybody in this room that does not know you, that has not given their life to you, Lord, that they would understand that invitation is there for them and that they would give their life to you. Lord, I pray for believers in this room, believers that just need to be reminded of your goodness, of your grace, of the abundant life that you have given, of your deity, and of your glory. Lord, we would see that, and we would live a life that wants to proclaim that and reflect that, and then people in this town see that, see that this body just loves Jesus, and they care for me enough to have a conversation or to give a hug, a handshake. Lord, and I pray that the name of Jesus is proclaimed and honored and glorified through this body of believers. I pray that you would work in hearts here, pray that they would spend time with you today, Lord, and we give this, this day and this time to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.